All right, welcome Seth one more time for us, guys. Thanks, Anthony. Yeah. Well, good morning, everybody. It's, so, uh, it's a treat to get to be here, to drive up this morning. It was, uh, you know, it's a, a, a brief drive, driving up the mountain. It's fun to get to be here. Um, I'm preaching a text out of Romans 8. Now, Romans 8 has been near and dear to my heart, mind, and soul uh, ever since I was a Christian. One of my first ever memory verses I was assigned when I was in high school was Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then when I was actually a senior in high school, I was going on this mission trip, and the mission trip leader uh, challenged everyone on the mission trip to memorize all of Romans chapter 8. And that was a hugely formative time for me as I was like, what happens is when you're trying to memorize something, you repeat it again and again and again. And so it ends up getting deeper into your heart and soul. And so especially like as a lot of my friends are walking away from the faith or walking away from my expression of the faith or who are just kind of walking away from the church but maybe not walk away from the faith, there's a kind of this experience of isolation I was having while memorizing this text. And so it's really rooted into my heart and soul and into my psyche. And here right in the middle, there's a celebration here that I like way too much. And so uh, you know, I'm, in Enneagram terms, I'm an Enneagram 8, which means my deepest fear in life is being controlled. So I don't know if you guys have ever like tapped into your deepest, darkest fears in your soul, but my deepest fear is being controlled. I don't like it. When I start to feel controlled, my blood pressure goes up. Um, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, could, my dad is a PE teacher, coach type person, and so nobody ever controlled him. And so this idea of being controlled was like scary to me. And so this good news of all good news is if I said what's the best good news in the Bible, most good Christians would say that Christ is risen from the dead. Um, but I would say th- this one, uh, in chapter 8, verse 12, we are not obligated. There you go. I'm like, yes, no obligations. This idea of obligations makes me want to go jump off of a bridge. You know, this idea of like you know, family obligations, you know, like, hey, we're all get- meeting up. And as soon as I feel like my sense of agency is taken from me or my ability to do what I want is taken from me, I just get really fussy and I don't like being there. This, uh, this kind of like going to a family event where you all have to like say the nice right things and you can't ruffle anybody's feathers because they're family. Anytime people are strapping on obligations to me, I just feel uh, really bad about it. It's even like how I felt about um, going back to like the COVID regulations in 2020. As soon as I thought it was my idea, I was in favor of it. As soon as I felt like somebody else was making me do it, I was against it. You know, and that's just my my deep nature is this idea that obligations are bad, uh, total freedom is good. And I think that so many of my friends now who have walked away from the faith have walked away into this, what I would call like a secular humanism perspective, which is this, this definition that would say that what humans are is they are the culmination of evolutionary advancement that has made us these uh, creatures with this illusion of agency, but actually are still just ruled by instinct and atoms and electrons and neurons that are trying to propagate the species over the earth. And so we have reached this kind of perspective on uh, uh, illumination that we are actually uh, different than other animals, which in fact we are not. That we just happen to be at the top of the evolutionary spectrum and how actually it is just our, our physicality, uh, this physical determinism that you know, there's all we have is uh, all that is meets the eye and that's basically all it means to be human is just to be a more evolved species of creature. And I don't like that. 
because it means that uh, all the moral battles we fight are nothing. It means that death is just transition. It means that justice doesn't exist. It means that injustice doesn't exist. It means that uh, power is the only thing that matters. It means that uh, any type of a sense of right and wrong or ought or beauty or transcendence, all of that is just nothing. It is just our collective uh, atoms fuzzing about in our head, giving us the illusion of meaning so that we desire to pass on our genes so that they can have a greater, deeper sense of illusion of meaning. And here what happens here is this, this great liberating text, Romans eight twelve. we are not obligated to the flesh. Now, Paul here is not correcting uh, secular determinism or naturalism or Darwinism, but he is speaking to this reality of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean to live a full life? What does it mean to flourish? What does it mean to be someone who's not wasting their life? And he's saying it is more than just doing base animal instinct stuff. That if you are actually led by the Spirit of God, you are not obligated to just go along with your baser animal instincts. There is agency, there is meaning, there is purpose, there is transcendence, that part of what even separates humans from animals is this capacity to let vision and ethics and morality and purpose override even our most basic physical desires or needs. That we are not like animals ruled by appetites, but we are like children ruled by the king of the universe. And in this text, he's inviting us into that deeper, more meaningful reality. That it's not just by virtue of our humanity, but it's by virtue of our connection to God Most High that we discover and recover what it means to be most human. Because what ultimately sets humanity apart from the animals is our capacity to connect with the Spirit of God. Is our capacity to have a relationship with the creator of the universe, is our capacity to, when we think about artificial intelligence and chat GPT and all the technology coming out, like what's going to separate humans apart from the digital humans? It's going to be the fact that we have fellowship with the spirit of God. And so this text is actually impossibly relevant for our current moment because it both addresses the Darwinism, the secularism, the naturalism, and it addresses the question of what is actually making us distinctly human, and it is this fellowship with the Holy Spirit of God. And so I have good news for all of us this morning as Redemption Church is that we have agency. We're not obligated. We're not bound. We're not determined. It's not inevitable that we would just do the deeds of the body and then die and then hopefully pass on that legacy which is not actually a legacy and so i hope that we recover this vision of possibility this vision of true liberation this vision of what it means to have a life that's actually conformed to the spirit of god and so i want to pray and so my big idea is we're not obligated but i want to talk about um, the spirit um, our bodies and then our path and we'll go that direction as we talk through this text. Let me pray, and then we'll sit under the text. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you will uh, translate my words uh, into people's hearts, that they would hear from you directly, and only me indirectly. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So one of the most important things when it comes to interpreting a text is knowing what came right before it. And in Romans chapter 7, which comes right before chapter 8, there is this tension, this clash, 
this battle that's going on in, in the person who's speaking. Maybe it's Paul, maybe Paul's speaking on behalf of someone, but there's this, there's this part of me that wants to do the right thing, and there's this part of me that does not want to do the right thing, and there's this me versus me battle going on back and forth, and if you read Romans 7, you like identify with this person, and you feel sympathy for this person, because you're going like, man, this is just this lose-lose battle of me versus me. I want to do the right thing, but then I do the wrong thing. I want to honor God, but then I don't. There's a piece of me that hates God's law, and a piece of me that wants to submit to God's law, and tension, tension, tension. But the most significant thing for us to understand about Romans chapter 7 is what's actually not in Romans chapter 7, and it is the fact that the Holy Spirit is not mentioned anywhere. That it's just this me versus me dynamic, but in Romans chapter 8, this fresh a voice comes out, and all of a sudden now we're talking about the Spirit of God, that therefore is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And condemnation, I understand, is really being this architectural real estate term, that if you drive past a building on the side of the road, and there's a big sign that says condemned, what that means is it's not fit for occupancy. It means you should tear it down and start fresh. It means it's not usable. It means it's been neglected, abused, not cared for well, and someone should not live in this house. It's not safe to live in. And here Jesus comes along and says, looks at us and says, not condemned, meaning fit for use, occupiable, that he's going to cleanse us by his blood and then send his spirit to inhabit us. He's not going to just fix us up, flip us or fix us up and then rent us out, but he's going to fix us up and personally inhabit us by his spirit. And so we are not condemned and that is good News And this is, an, this is a, a word of encouragement saying you can be and will be inhabited by God. But those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But because of the work of the Christ on the cross, you now are inhabitable. That you are a good container for the Spirit of God as He comes to dwell in you. That you actually have, that because you're washed in the blood of Jesus... It is actually not ridiculous that the Holy Spirit would reside inside of you and live in you and animate you. Now, when we talk about spirit, we got to clarify this all the time. What are we talking about here? Is, you know, my wife is a cheerleader. I got spirit. How about you? You know, you got spirit. Yes, we do. If we're talking about like vibe, like the energy of a place, that place has good spirit, right? Uh, or are we talking about like spirit, like you can drink a lot of spirits and then have a headache the next day after you disassociate from reality? Is that what spirit is? Or is, or is spirit something, and we just want to be very clear, the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, the third person of the Trinity. When, the, when I say the Spirit is living in us, it's not we're tapping into energies or vibes. Actually, there's a personal connection and dwelling and connecting and present with us. And so here's what it says. Here's how it turns for our text today. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but, verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh. This should be a word of encouragement. You are in the Spirit. Speaking to the church, this is an encouragement word. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Now here's a question. How do you know if the Spirit of God is in you? How do you know that? There are other diagnostics throughout the Scriptures, but one of the marks we see in 2 Corinthians is that only the Holy Spirit can say Jesus is Lord. There's some reality that if you are testifying to the resurrection of God, 
That if you believe that God took on flesh and that that fleshly God was killed on your behalf and arisen from the dead and you're able to say Jesus is Lord, that is one of the marks, like legitimately believing. That the, the, the flesh is hostile to belief in the things of God, but the Spirit comes into our life and causes us to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's one of the markers. There's all this like, kind of question of like, if you grew up in a Pentecostal space, the way you know of the Holy Spirit is if you had some kind of dramatic experience of the Holy Spirit. If you grew up in like more conservative spaces, the way that you know you have the Holy Spirit is if you like believe all the right doctrine. But most basically what Paul is saying is like, the way you know of the Holy Spirit in your life is if you believe that Christ is who he says he is. That you, that you trust in him for your salvation, that you're actively seeking to follow after him, not as a means of earning your salvation, but as a means of being close to the one that you love. That there is a desire to go in the right direction, even if it's unfaithfully followed through in, in a mixed bag. Like I think about, so I, one of the things I do now on Saturdays is I coach three-year-old soccer. So coach is a, uh, a generous term. You know, it's... it's it's supervise uh, slash, it's a lot of like being on my knees saying like, hey man, you don't need to cry because the ball went out of bounds. Like that's okay. You know, and so, but there's this, there's this other team where like they had so many meltdowns. Like I think about so, like three-year-old soccer, you could count goals or you could count tears per hour and it'd be about the same uh, number, you know, like 75, you know, because there's just no, we have one kid on our team who is like the, the, the messy of three-year-old soccer. He just, every time he touches the ball, he scores. I don't know what his deal is, but the nice thing is his dad knows this is pretend, it's not real. He's not, other dads on the other team's way too serious. But the other team was having so many meltdowns that they ran out of players. And so I went to my three-year-old team and I took a look at two kids. It's like, all right, because it's reversible jerseys. So it's like, all right, switch your jersey um, because you're on that team now because they don't have enough players. And so we took their blue jerseys and it became a gold jersey. And then they're on the other team, right? And so, but then it was like three, two, one, go. And they kept shooting at the other goal still. So it was like, <laughs> boom. So instead of having like, instead of like making it a fair game, we made it an even less fair game because now it's everybody's shooting at the same goal, uh, pretending to play defense. And, and, and this is like the, the, the external uh, markers uh, are not necessarily faithful uh, to like the internal markers, right? Like a lot of us, like we change what we do on Sunday mornings, but who we really are, what we really want doesn't change. We keep shooting at the same goals. This is part of like the diagnostic test here. It's like, okay, so you, you say you're a Christian, you go to church now, you do stuff on Sunday mornings, um, but like what you really want out of life is still sex, money, power. What you really want out of life is still like to gain the approval of your parents. What you really want out of life is to be liked by the community. What you really want out of life, it's the same stuff as before, but you've just kind of switched external containers. And part of what Romans 8 is doing is like, if that's you, FYI, you're, you're not a Christian. So the question of if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, what he's saying is like, have you actually began to experience the heart change of going like, I'm shooting at a different goal now. My, my definition of a successful life is actually changing. My, my aim for my life is not just leave my kids a better life than my parents gave me. My aim for my life is not just uh, climb a corporate ladder and retire and, 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 and go sailing. My aim for my life is not just to be generally accepted by the right community. My, my aim for my life is actually faithfulness 
fellowship with Christ, building his kingdom, connecting with him, and I'm going to leverage all that I have for that end. And so what he's saying is, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, he's not trying to just arouse self-suspicion and say like, hey, if you think you're a Christian, probably not. He's saying like, if what's actually driving you is the Spirit of God, then you have nothing to worry about. And this is part of what the word spirit even means. It's this, this unseen mover. Like the word wind and spirit are the same in Greek. And if you look outside and you see the trees moving, nobody thinks the trees are moving themselves. <laughs> like, look at those trees. They're just shaking. What's going on? You understand that it's the unseen mover, the wind moving the trees. That what he's saying is like, if the spirit of God is what's energizing you and driving you, instead of the spirit of the age which is energizing and driving you, or the spirit of secularism, or the spirit of uh, suburban pipe dreams, or the spirit of whatever, like if it's actually conformity to the way of Christ, the spirit of Christ of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, if that's what's actually driving you, if that's what's blowing you and moving you, and if that's putting wind in your sails, then you belong to Christ. Then you're exactly who he's trying to encourage here. Then you have nothing to worry about. Then you have no obligation to the flesh. Because the spirit of secularism, the spirit of the age, constantly is trying to get you to believe that all you have is this deep internal sense of desires and instincts and you should just go with them. Because if you actually restrict your instincts, if you restrict your desires, if you restrict your appetites, that's actually oppression or self-oppression or systemic oppression, and you actually uh, need to fight for liberty, the, the, and liberty is the capacity to do exactly what your, your, your physical body wants you to do all the time. Whereas Paul is saying, if you are animated by Christ's Spirit... There's this deeper sense of freedom, this non-obligated life that you're being invited into, that you have this capacity to be animated by the Spirit of Christ. Now, in verse 10, he says this, Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Now, it's talking about our physical bodies. Now, when we see the word flesh, most of the time it's talking about the sinful flesh, the way in which our instincts or our desires or our, or our gut impulses are shaped by sinfulness. But here he uses the language of body. The body is dead because of sin. Um, but in verse 11 it says, But if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also bring your, bring your mortal bodies to life. So here's this tension that I see in this text. The body is dead because of sin, but also the Spirit rose Christ Jesus from the dead in the body, and our body is going to be given this life. So what is Paul saying? Is Paul high on the body or low on the body? Is he anti-body? Is he uh, pro-body? Is he thumbs up on our physical bodies or thumbs down on our physical bodies? What's, how should I feel about my body here? Because elsewhere, um, it, it's understanding this. Now, Abraham Kuyper talks about this a good amount, and his, his, his quote that I think summarizes and helps me understand what's going on here is he talks about how um, Paul, or therefore the spirit who's writing through Paul, is for the body and against the flesh. <laughs> for the body, against the the flesh. That Christians ought to have a high view of the body and a low view of the flesh. Because when we see the word flesh, we should see the sinful flesh. When we see the body, we should see the created temple that God gave us. 
that God on purpose gave humans bodies, not on accident gave us bodies. And so what he's saying here is, now if Christ is in you, the body is as good as dead because of sin. Your body will continue to decay and betray you. My son who's three the other day was walking around like this. Ah, ah, ah. He's three years old. I'm like, Jay, what's wrong? He's like, I'm old. <laughs> and I said, Jay, what do you think old means? He's like, it's when you hurt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then he pointed at my face and I got this gray hair. And he looked at me and says, does that hurt, Dad? <laughs> does what hurt, Jay? Getting old, does it hurt? And I was like, you mean emotionally? You know, like a sense of lost opportunity? You know, like, sure, you know, but... Uh, there's just this reality that the effects of sin go on affecting us, even when we're forgiven by Christ, redeemed and washed and full of the Spirit, that I am confident that I'm led by the Spirit of God, but I'm also confident that this world, including my physical body, is still committing what Kuiper calls a creational apostasy, that our bodies are rebelling physically against the original design through decay and disease, and dysfunction. That my hair turns gray because the follicles are wearing out or a rubber reason the hair turns gray. That my knee hurts and so my son thinks, well, Dad, why is your knee hurt? And I was like, oh, because I'm getting old. And now he thinks pain and old are the same thing, right? Before the fall, that's not how it was. Older just meant getting wiser. Now older means getting wiser possibly and getting more pain. <laughs> And so there's this reality that our bodies are doing this physically, but we should have hope for our bodies because just like Christ's body was killed on the cross, but the same spirit that dwells in us raised that body from the dead, so also your body will do this for a while, but eventually it'll do this. Our bodies will raise just like Christ's body was raised. Christ's body bled because it was sinned against. Christ's body died because it was oppressed by, by the Roman conspiracy. Christ's body died because of sin. But the Spirit of God rose His body from the dead because of righteousness. Because of God is not going to junk what He made because He's committed to His creation. So the exact same reason that Christ could have faith that He'd be raised in three dead... It, th- be raised from the dead in three days is the reason that you can have faith that your body will also be risen. That your body has the same shot at resurrection as Christ's body, which is 100%. Do you think, like, the same spirit that indwelled Christ rose his body from the effects of the same sin which killed Christ? The sin in the world is going to destroy your physical body, and the spirit in the world is going to raise your physical body, just like the sin in the world killed Christ's body, and the spirit in the world rose Christ's body. There's a sameness, a trajectory, a story that we follow in after Christ, that when Christ returns and makes all things new, our bodies will be risen. And so just because our bodies are on the decline doesn't mean we have the right to hate them, doesn't mean we have the right to be disgusted by them doesn't mean the right we have the right to judge them like i think that like if you look at the statistics on body dysmorphia which is people just not liking how their body is 
for men and for women, it is just skyrocketing ever since the advent of social media. Skyrocketing. It used to be a mostly female problem, and now it is still a huge female problem. Now it is also becoming a huge male problem. And part of what this text is pushing on us, saying, the Spirit of God will resurrect your body. He loves your body. He's invested in your body eternally. Like I think about managing my finances, managing my house, and when I think about like, like when I'm, what it would be a successful financial life for me, I try to think about my grandkids inheriting my house, right? I hope that they're a little bit excited when grandpa dies because they get some stuff. <laughs> you know, I don't know. You know. Silver lining, I guess you could say. I hope that. Uh, but that changes the way I think about it, right? If I'm like, ah, who cares? This house is decaying anyway. I won't be here in 60 years when that decision plays out. I, like, I'm trying to think about, like, this is familial inheritance, and so I'm treating it like it's not, doesn't just belong to me, but like it belongs to my grandkids. I'm, I mean, I'm not doing that super well, but I'm attempting to think in that mindset. And I think we all need to treat our bodies the same way. That just because it's certainly going to do this, Father Time is undefeated, you know, gravity is undefeated, uh, you know, everyone, like, we're all, all of our physical bodies will do this without exception at some different rate, but it doesn't just belong to us. That the Holy Spirit of God is eternally invested in our bodies. And we ought to treat it with dignity and respect. Because God treats it with dignity and respect. That if we find ourselves like hatred for our bodies. Whether because we have a bum knee or because we don't look a certain way. Or because our, our hearing's going out and we just are just mad. Like, we need to understand that part of what we need to repent of. Is having as high a view of our bodies as God has of our bodies. So I hope some of what you all walk away from this is like, Jesus, by his spirit, will resurrect my body. It's going to decay, so I shouldn't have like this unhealthy affection for it in its present state because it's basically getting to get worse from 24 on. But I also should have this view of like, it's a meaningful temple of the Holy Spirit and he plans on indwelling it forever. He'll give life to your bodies who lives in you. So that's our bodies. We exist in this tension of they're always getting worse, but we need to treat them with dignity because God's eternally committed to them. Just like he's eternally committed to Christ's body. Verse 12, so then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We're not animals. We're not programmed. We don't have to do what sin wants us to do. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. This is not a threat, it's a promise. I talk to so many folks who are in some type of addiction. Uh, sexual sin addiction, harder drugs, alcohol, gossip. But there's like this reality that when your life is difficult, when it's hard, when it's unpleasant, your sin has been your best friend. The thing that's there for you at your lows, that doesn't judge you, 
that doesn't, like, helps you feel better, that shows up for you, that offers you, like, moments of, like, hope and connection, ever-present. And then you say, this, it will not, like, the number of pastor friends that I have who are no longer pastor friends because they've had a friend that was a sin issue that they just kind of, ah, that won't kill me. I can keep it, right? I went to a friend's house the other week, and they had this, in their garage, a gigantic spider web with a big black widow in it. And I said, what is that? (laughs) And why haven't you canceled your whole week to destroy that thing? What is going on? Oh, that? Uh, We just don't go over there. (laughs) It's it's more afraid of you than you are of it. And I'm like, murder that thing right now. What are we doing? It's like, oh, well, like, it's too high. Our kids can't reach it. It's up there. You know, it's in the garage. It's up in the corner. Like, we don't mind that. And I'm like, I don't want to be in your house if this is how you treat black widows. You know, get me out of here. I don't, like, what else is in here that you just think, like, oh, it's just over there. You have an axe murder in the corner. Like, oh, he just said, don't, don't come near me. I won't hit with this axe. Okay, deal. You know, like, it's just, like, you're just, like, seceding territory, like, to just these devilish things. Like, I see a spider in my house, and I don't care what kind of spider it is. It's like, cancel the meetings. Everything has to, like, I, and I will, I will cover my house in poison to not have a black widow in my house. I'm like, cancer is a future threat. This is a present threat. You know, like, <laughs> kill it all. I don't, you know, just the... And here's, here's what I think in our heart of hearts, is we think that our sin won't kill us. So we just learn of our house. Other people's sin, that might kill them. But my sin, that's a tolerable weakness. I'm only human. I know why other people think that, like, that type of sin would lead you to death. But my type of sin won't lead me to death. And we just kind of harbor it. We keep it there. We show it this weird deferential hospitality. Oh, welcome, a guest. You don't live here, but you can be a guest in my house. Like, I was driving home the other week, and I saw this uh, guy on a Segway going up and down my street, which I thought, just take a walk, man. Like, but anyway, he was on a Segway, so he was going up and down the street, and he had one of the, like, the pest control company shirts on. And I know that, like, my wife's a pretty confident lady, but, like, her worst nightmare is, like, someone knocking on the door trying to sell her something and her having to, like, say, go away and shut the door. And whereas I feel totally great about being mean to strangers. So I was like, oh, this... So, so I went home, and I was like, did the pest control guy get here yet? She's like, no. I was like, thank goodness. I can say thanks, bud. No thanks. And so um, I'm unpacking my stuff and getting loaded, and then uh, my kid comes running out, three-year-old, and he goes, hey, what's that, Dad? And right by the front door is like a three-inch scorpion. I don't know if those are a huge thing in Flagstaff, but in Gilbert, it's like oxygen. You know, the scorpions are everywhere. You know, and so this big scorpion, so it's like freak-out moment. And so I crush the scorpion, and then my wife and my kids are like 
there's scorpions. Because the thing about scorpions is uh, if there's one, there's many. And so scorpions are, uh, you know, like teenagers at the movies. You know, they're never there by themselves, you know. So it's, it might look like there's a, there's a group. There's going to be a group. So there's, that's how it goes. And so then about 40 seconds after I killed a scorpion, the same pest control guy knocks on the door that I was hostile to a minute ago. And he goes, hi, do you have, I was like, what are you selling? I'm buying it, you know, and I want it. And I went from like hostile to that guy to hostile to the bugs real fast, you know. And, and all of a sudden, like what I was hospitable towards and what I was hostile towards just flipped because what seemed like the bigger threat switched in my mind. And I got to tell you, this is the switch that has to happen in our minds. I think that we're hospitable to our sin and we're hostile towards being like too judgy or legalistic. I think one of the problems in the evangelical church, including Redemption Flagstaff, including Redemption Gateway, is we're so nervous about being legalistic that we end up being hospitable to sin. I'm not saying try to earn God's favor through doing good stuff and repenting because that's not how it works. But I am saying you've switched jerseys, now shoot at the other goal. Here's what he says here. If you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is called the mortification of sin, the murdering of sin. By the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. We must become judge, jury, and executioners of our own sin by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. And by deeds of the body here, he's talking about those baser, sinful, animalistic instincts, the tribalistic instinct to gossip and slander, the Darwinistic instinct to just reproduce and to uh, do whatever you want sexually so that you can pass on your genes to the next generation the capitalistic instinct to acquire as much money as possible so that you can have, have liberty. Like I, the, the, the Marxist instinct to get as much power as possible so that you can finally accomplish your will and desire. Like we have all these baser instincts that are animalistic, sub-Christian, sub-human, and he's saying, put him to death, be led by God's spirit, live in the kingdom. Live that way. And this requires a purposeful, actionable plan to actually be living by the Spirit and to put to death the deeds of the body. So the question is, how do you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body? What's that actually look like? How do we actually do that? How do we actually play that out? Because that's a big question here. Doesn't say by trying harder to put to death these a body. Doesn't say by promising it'll be different next time, put to death these a body. Doesn't say uh, for, for fear of approval, put to death these a body. It says by the Spirit, put to death these a body. And this has everything to do with our relational connection to the Spirit in prayer. This is going to sound like cliche Christianese. We just got to pray. But I'm telling you that apart from personal connection to the Spirit, of God in prayer, there is no putting to death the deeds of the body. It is not rocket science, it is relationships. That in connection to the Holy Spirit, 
He heals our desires. He heals our wanter. He heals our fallenness. And we actually start to want the things that he wants. Internet software is helpful. Accountability groups can be helpful. All these systems for managing our baser instincts can be helpful. But the only thing that will actually heal and undo the effects of our sin is the Spirit of God. And we want strategies and tactics, and that's fine, but I'm telling you, strategies and tactics do not defeat sin. Actually, depending on strategies and tactics is a form of legalism. Just get the right tactic, get the right strategy. Be with the right person. It is presence and his power that leads us and guides us. Because here's the deal, if we could trust in tactics and strategy, then we'd be earning our sanctification. We'd be earning our just, we'd be, it'd be a form of earning. But God is saying, be with me. Let me work on you. Let me over time transform your heart. Let me, let me sit with you in the midst of your ugly desires and over time help you see that your desires can be healed. And so for Emerson Flagstaff, I got to tell you, like, one of the most powerful things you can do is engage in, engage in corporate worship, corporate prayer, gathering together, submitting yourself to the Spirit in prayer. This is the means that we have. This is the means. You know, I was um, a coach's kid growing up. My dad was a basketball coach of Chandler High School. And there was like this moment that I would, I would sometimes sneak into the locker room uh, at halftime, especially when they were losing, to just hear how he was going to like let those young guys have it, you know. And it, it was kind of a fun thing. And there was like this moment where he'd look at all these players, sense of defeat, you know, elbows on the knees. And my dad would start with his halftime speech, and all of a sudden the, the hands would go to the knees, and the hands would go to the hips. And then the, the, you know, like, there's like the, the disposition change as like the coach shared the vision and said, here's what we're going to do. And you go from feeling like hopeless to hopeful, from defeated to possibly victorious to a sense of uh, trapped to liberation. And it's time spent with our leader and access to his heart that actually causes our hearts to change and start to believe in a different future reality. Some of you can't even imagine a future in which you're not sinning in the way you're currently sinning. You've got to hear the Father's voice communicated to you in his word and his spirit to imagine a preferred future in which you might actually be the person God is making you to be. And I'm telling you, he's interested, he's invested, and he's calling you. There is no more important work you're going to do than figuring out where are the black widows in your house that you need to get up there and murder. <laughs> in the name of Jesus, commit murder. <laughs> Of your sin, to be clear. Murder your sin. Don't e email Anthony if you have a problem with it. But we got to, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of our body. And this is work, identifying and rooting out because the Spirit is captivating our hearts. And so I want to pray for you all because I know this, is, this feels daunting sometimes to get on this train and stay on this train and try to make sure I'm going like, 
All I want is to be with the Spirit who's going to show me Jesus, who's going to connect me to the Father so that my heart can be aligned to his heart so that all of a sudden I can experience, I'm not obligated to live according to the flesh, but I can by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. And that's the only long-term way to do this. This is fighting the fight. This is the race. This is the task. This is the path. And so I hope that we would be more afraid of our sin than we are of legalism. And hope that we'd be more interested in being hostile to our sin than being hospitable to it. And I hope that all of you engage in this work knowing that you have nothing to prove and no one to impress and that the affection that the Father has for you is not on the line. You can't earn it. You can just work from it. So let me pray for you. Jesus, I ask that you will help us. Holy Spirit, help us. The ways that we've been entrapped or entrenched in our sin, God, change our minds about our sin. Help us be convicted of the ways that we've been hospitable rather than hostile to our sin. I pray that you will help us resist by your spirit, not in our flesh, the other flesh, that we would not be the person in Romans 7 doing me versus me. We would actually see that there is another person here with us fighting our battles, healing our hearts. God, I pray that Redemption Flagstaff would be a place known for being led by the Spirit in such a way they put to death the deeds of the flesh. God, I pray that as we sing, as we reflect, that we'd have fellowship with you, and that you'd meet us in our most shameful places. Restore us, assure us of grace. In your name we pray, amen.